Well, good afternoon. It's good to be here. Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn to Matthew 5. I'm going to read one verse, but also you might want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 37 and keep your finger there because we're going to be looking there as well. Pray with me, if you would. Father, we love your word. We're thankful for the truth that we have been given as your church. We thank you that, Lord, you have not left us to try to figure out how to navigate ourselves through this world, but you have given us your sure word that we can know how to relate to our world, how to rightly understand who we are, how to come to know you. May you give us clarity in this moment as we open your word, and may we be changed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look at Matthew 5, 5. The word of God reads, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, a few things have caused greater division in evangelicalism than how to respond to the government overreach that we've experienced in the past couple of years. Who will be Lord of the church? Will Caesar dictate how, are, how and when our churches gather to worship, or, or will Christ govern his church through his word? And all of this is actually even exposed in the uh, anemic ecclesiology of many evangelical churches. Astonishingly, even those who had become renowned advocates for sound ecclesiology abandoned the biblical principles of ecclesiology that they once championed as they surrendered to government tyranny. Government leaders were telling churches they could not gather at all or could gather in limited numbers or could only gather outdoors or if they gathered they couldn't sing or take communion. In addition, churches were being regulated or having their doors shuttered while abortion clinics and liquor stores were deemed to be essential. And we knew that while God has ordained a sphere of authority for the government, that authority can never be exercised to override the orders that have been given to us by the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever government steps outside the sphere of authority, it has crossed over into tyranny, and it's time to say we must obey God rather than men. Yet few evangelical leaders were seeming... Willing, unwilling to stand up and say, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Here on the American front, John MacArthur called upon pastors. He stood up, he, and he called upon pastors to take a public stand by declaring those exact words. Many stood with Dr. MacArthur, and they said, Christ is the Lord of the church, and the gathering of the saints to worship isn't optional. It's not optional. Singing isn't optional. Observing the ordinances isn't, are not optional. And allowing government to dictate if and when we can obey our Lord Jesus Christ is not an option. But surprisingly... Some question MacArthur's call for churches to stand against these tyrannical orders and ask questions like, do we want to spend down our capital on pandemics? Many seem to be content to let Caesar dictate in these matters, at least for now. But we know that not only things were happening here, but things were happening in Canada that were even greater than just taking abuse from a, a blog 
Now we find the fa fact that they're uh, facing issues that deal specifically with not only what can be preached or not whether they can gather, but what can be preached from their pulpits when they do gather. And so I had asked the critics of, of men like MacArthur and Coates who have taken these stands and many others, what will be the tipping point for you to say it's time to spin down your capital? So churches have got to make it clear that we won't be asking Caesar to give us permission when to preach or what to preach. There has never been a greater need for real men to fill our pulpits and godly Christians to stand in the face of tyranny more than now. But the question is, how do we rightly respond? As we look around at the moral fabric of our culture quickly disintegrating before our eyes, we see antagonism directed toward Christians in unprecedented ways. And we see a capitulation of so many within evangelicalism to the blowing cultural winds. It is easy to fret and it's easy to fear. We should not cower with fear. We must be courageous in an hour like this. Yet there are those who are uncomfortable at best when they hear the talk of a militant and triumphant church. For far too many are more comfortable with a timid church than a triumphant church and prefer a milquetoast church to a militant church. But why is that? Because it's not as if the language of, of warfare doesn't exist in Scripture. In fact, the Bible is replete with such imagery. Jesus said that he came not to bring peace but a sword. Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, his exact words. Ephesians 6 actually details the armor for our battle. And 2 Corinthians 10 explains that the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So the Bible does not shy away from warfare imagery for the church's work in this world. It just simply does not. At the same time, militant language might sound incompatible with Christ's kingdom. And we certainly don't want to have a spirit of militancy or triumphalism. After all, Jesus describes those here in Matthew 5.5 that those who are blessed in his kingdom are, are gentle. So are these things at odds with one another? Or are there times that we're to be gentle and other times that we're not? And we're just to discern which time as well uh, we, that we're supposed to be as well. That we, we try to discern when it's time to spin down our capital. Well, I think maybe we should look a little more closely to understand what is biblical gentleness. What is this that Jesus is talking about here? If we're part of Christ's kingdom, we dare not dismiss or, or gloss over these words, blessed are the gentle. As we face these battles, we've got to remember to whose kingdom that we belong. We are not ultimately citizens of America. We are not ultimately citizens of Canada or any other earthly nation. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom. We do not have the freedom to play by the rules of this world or our opponents. We have been given orders by our king and the same Lord who gave us orders about how we are to obey God rather than man has given us orders about how we're to respond to the attacks that are coming and will be intensifying over time. So how do I reconcile these things? 
I'm in the middle of a battle. I'm experiencing persecution. And I read where Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You really won't find a more counterintuitive idea to how natural man thinks when it hears blessed or the gentle. I mean, come on, who inherits anything on earth by being gentle? Strength, power, self-assurance, aggressiveness. That's how you succeed in this world. The gentle inherit the earth. I mean, in my experience, the gentle get trampled on the earth. The problem is that gentleness can actually be hard to define because we're tempted to go to our own ideas about what it means and to define it. For some, it wrongly generates the idea of weakness or, or spinelessness or timidity. The tendency is to think of this beatitude to be based on, on natural temperaments, on natural personalities. But we've got to be careful not to think of gentleness as someone who always comes across as polite in their tone as passive, or never confronts a wrong. We would be gravely mistaken to reduce this word to mere niceness, to mild-manneredness, or some naturally easygoing or soft-spoken person. By the way, never forget that some of the worst heresies have come packaged in gentle tones. But in Matthew 11, Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly. But in that same context of Matthew 11, he uttered fiery denunciations on the unrepentant cities of Chorazin and Capernaum. Another time, he fiercely rebuked the Pharisees, saying that they were hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. When men turned his father's house into a den of robbers, he turned their tables over and forcefully drove them out. Paul, who told Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness when the gospel was being threatened by those requiring the act of circumcision as part of the gospel, he pointedly told those false teachers to go emasculate themselves. Did Jesus or Paul abandon gentleness when they responded in those ways? I wonder that because Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are usually gentle. As if there are times when you just won't be able to be gentle. But it should be generally the case. It seems that gentleness must be compatible with great strength, with great authority, and with power. So on the one hand, how do we understand what Jesus means by gentle that doesn't reduce it to just mere niceness? And on the other hand, how do we Guard against using the strong words of Jesus or Paul to justify a sharp, judgmental, fighting spirit. Well, one of the things I think that first might help us is in Jesus' day, this Greek word he used didn't have the connotation that some might think of, of niceness or a mild-mannered demeanor. Gentleness was considered a virtue because in that culture because it was understood to be the balance between what they said was excessive anger and the inability to show anger at all. For example, earlier Aristotle had used this word to describe someone, and I quote, who is angry on the right occasion and with the right people and at the right moment and for the right length of time. 
you could say that it carried a connotation of someone who was under control rather than out of control, even in the most adverse circumstances. But I actually think there's a better way to understand Jesus' meaning of this word that's actually more helpful, and it still connects to the word gentle that might have been used, likely used in Jesus' day, but it sticks to the text itself. So turn over to Psalm 37. And the reason we're turning there is because if you look closely in Matthew 5, 5 in the margins, you'll find that Jesus is quoting in Matthew 5, 5, he is quoting exactly Psalm 37, 11. And this, quoting from the Septuagint reading of that, in Psalm 37, 11 would have read, but the, and some translations have, humble, meek, or gentle will inherit the land. And the word that is used there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word that's used in Matthew 5.5. 5. Now let me take a moment to just explain the context. We're not going to be able to look at this whole psalm. It's, it's one of the longer psalms as each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a section. But this psalm is contrasting, particularly as it opens up in verses 1 to 11. It's contrasting the prosperity and power of the wicked with the deprivation and the suffering of the righteous, mind you, at the hand of the wicked. So on one hand, you're looking at the prosperity of the wicked, you're looking at the deprivation and the suffering of the righteous, and the reason they're suffering and deprived is because they're suffering at the hands of wicked people. And the psalmist reminds God's people of both the Lord's providential care of the righteous now and his provision of peace in the future, which the wicked will not have. So look at verse 1. He says, don't fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Why? Because they're going to wither quickly like the grass. It may not feel like their time is short. It may seem like an eternity, but it's not. The wicked might seem to flourish but judgment is coming, he's going to say in 1 to 11. Their time is coming. And consider this, when you feel out of control, when you feel your world's out of control, and the wicked seem to be winning, and you're suffering because of them, it's easy for you and me to fret. That word is repeated three times. It's in verse 1. Notice it's again in verse 7 and in verse 8. The Hebrew word that is used there for fret means to, to burn. And the use of the verb that he uses here could actually be translated, don't work yourself into a slow burn. You look at what's going around and, and you become anxious and you fret and, and there's a, a burning sense, if you will, that we can fret when we think of what's coming politically in our country. We can fret when we see the world grow increasingly antagonistic, antagonistic toward the church. We can fret when the wicked seem to be prospering and those who are trying to live righteously are persecuted. And these Israelites were tempted to fret but what did, the what did the psalmist tell them to do? He, sent, he goes on to tell them to get their eyes off the wicked and on the Lord. 
Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Cultivate faithfulness. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. And that word commit kind of means to roll upon. So it's like take what you're dealing with and, and roll it upon the Lord. Trust also in him. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret. Because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. See the contrast between, don't look there, look at the Lord. Verse 8, do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. You're going to become just like those people that are abusing and persecuting you and are oppressing you. You're going to become like them. When we become overwhelmed by and fret over our circumstances, when we see the wicked prospering, it's so easy for us to think, I've got to do something. I've got to do something now. If somebody doesn't address this, God, somebody's got to do something. Perhaps we have to fight fire with fire. Maybe we need to engage in a fleshly fight. Maybe the rules have changed in this circumstance. But the psalmist warns, this kind of thinking will only lead to us starting to act like the wicked. You play by the rules, you'll be judged by the rules. You play like the rules, you'll become like them. So rather than those responses, what are they to do? You have to trust in the Lord. You have to walk in obedience to the Lord. You have to cultivate faithfulness. You see there, do good to find your delight in him, to commit your way to the Lord, to rest in the Lord's providential care. This is a rich passage for you to go home and dwell on as you think about how we respond to our world today. And as we continue to walk in obedience to the Lord, look what he says there, that he will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our judgment as the noonday. In other words, righteousness and faithfulness will triumph over the world and the wicked. The church triumphant is one that is bathed in the righteousness and the faithfulness to God. Our response is not to be reactionary to what the wicked of the world are doing. If we fret, if we stoke our anger, it will lead to our own evil doing. As opposed to the scheming of the wicked, the righteous are to rest in the Lord and to trust in him to provide for them and protect them as they continue to walk in obedience. Now I want you to look there because... That list goes on. You've got verse 3, commit your way to Yahweh and trust in him. And then down in verse 7, but wait patiently on Yahweh. Verse 8, cease from anger. And then down in, 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 in verse 9, because they're going to be cut off, and, but, but we will inherit the land. He talks there about hoping in Yahweh. Verse 10 and then 11, but the gentle will inherit the land and will delight themselves, just as he said earlier about delighting in, your, in the Lord. If you delight yourself in the Lord, you will eventually delight yourselves in abundant peace. The gentle will inherit the land. So at the end of this long list of commands that encourage a person to place his trust in God and not himself, what does the psalmist call this? Contrasted to the wicked who trust in their own strength and power, in verse 11, it's 
the gentle. The gentle are those who trust in the Lord, rest in the Lord, wait for the Lord, continue to do good and cultivate faithfulness, a deep trust in the sovereign power of God and continued faithful obedience to him is the essence of spiritual gentleness. It's more of a spiritual inward disposition. It's someone whose responses are not controlled by the ways of the wicked. They don't respond like the wicked, but possess an inward spiritual posture of the heart that fully and completely trusts in, waits upon, relies upon Yahweh. Now understand, this is not calling for some type of passivity toward the wicked. It doesn't mean that we just roll over and play dead. In fact, I would argue that if we're truly trusting the Lord and resting in the Lord and acting righteously, we will look to his word if we want to do good and we want to cultivate faithfulness in this land that we live in. We're going to look to his word to give guidance as to what our exact response should be. Maybe it would help us to have a couple examples from Scripture of individuals whose Scripture calls gentle. And maybe we could learn from them. You can turn there if you want in Numbers chapter 12, but consider Moses. Here's what we're told about Moses in Numbers 12.3. I love this verse. Remember, Moses is the author of, of this book, and here's what he, he writes. Now the man Moses was very gentle, more than any man on the face of the earth. I love that verse. Moses wrote it. I read it this way sometimes. The man of Moses was very gentle more than any man on the face of the earth, if I do say so myself. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 37. Now, if you know the context of Numbers 12 there, this was said about Moses immediately after Miriam and Aaron openly rebelled against him. I can imagine how angry he might have been. The word in Psalm 37 that says, do not be angry, is a word that, it's a, that visualize, it's a visualizing word. It means to flare the nostrils. And I can imagine at this moment that Moses' nostrils may have been tempted to flare. But rather than retaliating, rather than reviling in return, rather than seeking to protect or defend himself, Moses entrusted himself to the Lord in that moment. And if you know the story, the Lord dealt with Miriam in a very profound and effective way. Moses had to do nothing in that setting. What was the conduct of the most gentle man who ever lived when he came under personal attack? Did he fight back? Not at all. Did he cower and flee? No. He stood firm and he submitted himself to God. He trusted God. He delighted himself in God. He committed his way to God. He refrained from anger when he had every human reason to respond with, with human wrath. But we also know this about Moses, do we not? The meekest man, the most gentle man on earth, as recorded in Scripture. He was by no means a weak man. He was no by, me, by no means a passive man. When he came face to face with wicked Pharaoh, he boldly demanded that the powerful king of Egypt let God's people go. But that wasn't his idea. That was God's idea. He was simply cultivating faithfulness. He was doing what God had told him to do. 
He went in obedience to the word of the Lord. He trusted the Lord, delighted himself in God, acted righteously, committed his way to God, went in the strength of the Lord, and without reservation, he spoke God's word to, in his world, the most powerful ruler there would have been in his people's world. Consider Exodus 32. When he saw God's people breaking God's law and giving themselves over to idolatry, he confronted Israel with the wickedness of their sin. What did he do with the Ten Commandments? He, he, he smashed them. He, he threw them down. Then he reduced the golden calf to a pile of dust and he mixed it with water and he made the people drink it in order to annihilate the idol. In all of those circumstances, I would actually say that Moses displayed an inward disposition that was very consistent to what we see in Psalm 37 as defined by God's word. In both his outward display of humility and his outward display of strength, Moses was not acting in self-interest, but trusting and resting in and walking in, in faithfulness to the Lord. Now Moses may have been the most gentle man on earth in his day, might have been able to be written in Numbers 12, but by the time you come to another man in history of the world, it didn't even come close, and that would be Jesus. Again, in Matthew 11, Jesus describes himself as gentle. Same word as Matthew 5, 5, exact same word. So if Psalm 37 guides our understanding of biblical gentleness, we should expect to see Jesus, when faced by wicked men, to trust the Lord, rest in the Lord, commit his way to the Lord. And that's exactly what we see. Listen to the description of Jesus in 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, 22 to 23, Peter describes Jesus as he stood tri in trial this way. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You go back and you read that when Pilate, Pilate I should say, hurled insults at Jesus when he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was scorned by Roman soldiers, when he was spat upon and, and everything else that happened to him in that moment, Jesus did not revile in return. He entrusted himself to God's providential care. Jesus did not seek to defend himself. But what do we also know? We know that when it came to defend truth, when the truth of God was challenged, and just go back to that same setting, when Pilate stepped out of his sphere of authority and into God's sphere, Jesus didn't cower and he did not remain silent. Now, he certainly was not out of control by any means. But he was a gentle warrior in that moment, if you will, because in the same setting, when Jesus stood quietly before Pilate and Pilate uttered those arrogant words, you remember them? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus boldly corrected Pilate and said what? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus was the ultimate gentle warrior. 
He did not cower in fear, and he did not engage in a fleshly fight. He never played by the rules of the world. He only operated under the rules of his father because this is his world. But he would not stand passively by when God's word was defied and when government leaders placed themselves in the role of God. Jesus set Pilate straight with God's truth. Because I think Moses and Jesus are clear examples of of a wonderful example of what biblical gentleness looks like. The sort that stands silent when personally attacked, resting in the Lord, but will also trust in God's power and to stand boldly before the power, any, even the most powerful rulers of the world of their day, and say, thus says the Lord. So the gentle in Psalm 37 are those who are dependent on the Lord and hope in him even when everything seems to be going against them. And the wicked seem to be winning. And even though they may have limited resources and and even though they may have limited abilities, they are confident that God's promises will be fulfilled. And the promise in Psalm 37 is they will inherit the land. But I love Matthew 5, 5 because Jesus quotes it, but if you, I don't know if you noticed it, he expands it. Because Jesus says not, when he's quoting Psalm 37, 11, simply the gentle will inherit the land. He says the gentle will inherit what? The earth. Those in Christ's kingdom won't just inherit a sliver of land But the time is coming where we will reign with Christ. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where Christ will reign and he will govern in righteousness and the wicked will once and for all be eradicated. And the kings of this world will bow to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The truth is, church, we are already triumphant. Because Christ is our king, and if we're in his kingdom, no matter what the turmoil is in this world, we have nothing to fret. No matter what comes, the safest place to be is not in Florida and Texas, although that's a pretty safe place to be. But it's in Christ's kingdom. This earth and all that is in it belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He already owns it all. The wicked are are little more than squatters whose eviction notice has already been served. Christ owns this world. What we need is a spirit of gentleness, a trust in the Lord that surrenders completely control to him and acknowledges that this earth belongs to him And we fight against any lofty thing that would rise up against the knowledge of God. Not because we're trying to preserve something, but because we are declaring who Jesus is and this is his world. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Church, we represent the king and we dare not be timid in the face of those who would threaten us to be silent about proclaiming God's truth. Why do we stand up and say, no, government will not tell us that we cannot speak out against 
uh, or we cannot preach a biblical sexual morality. We don't do it because we have a right to say we want what we want to say. We say it because they have no right to silence God's word. We take our marching orders from our king. This is his world. He makes the rules. So when the truth of God is being trampled in our culture where people can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman, when tyrannical leaders seek to hinder or undermine the mission of Christ's church, what do we say to those who ask whether this is the time for the church to spend down our capital? I say the Lord hasn't entrusted to us capital to spend per our calculations, but he has entrusted to us his truth to be defended per his orders. I don't have the luxury of determining, determining when to stand. I'm just called to stand. I don't have the, I don't, I'm not called to figure out whether it's safe for me to stand. I just am called to speak the truth. We believe, therefore we speak. So if the state rebels against his God-ordained God responsibility as revealed in his word... My friends, the church not only may speak, she must speak God's truth to the state. How else will they know that they're going to face judgment from God eternally because they're disregarding his word if we don't tell them? Nancy Pelosi's not going to tell them. And even the most conservative governors you can pick out are not going to tell them. It is the church's responsibility to call upon the world, all of us, kings and all, to bow before Jesus. Biblical gentleness carries a sense of dependency upon God to obey what God calls us to do, even when he calls us to say we must obey God rather than men. There are some who mistakenly think that Simply because they're soft-spoken, that they're gentle. But that may not necessarily be the case from God's perspective. You might just be a coward. You're quiet, but you haven't given up control. Your quietness is not based in a trust in and committing your way to the Lord. Your quietness may be nothing more than your way of feeling like you're still in control. You actually may very well be quietly doing what you want to do, depending upon yourself, trusting in your own ideas, and not speaking truth when it needs to be said. Passivity is not biblical gentleness. Friends, we need to rise above superficial Christianity and all its niceties. We shouldn't think that because we have good manners and display proper social conventions that we're fulfilling the gentleness that Christ calls for. It could actually be the opposite. For those tempted to take flight or not stand as God's word is being trampled in our culture and as government leaders seek to displace, displace the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot stand silent. Now, if I were just preaching to the choir, I would stop there. But this is a message not only for those who are prone to take flight, this is a message for those who are prone to have a spirit to fight. It's for people like me who are more than ready to fight for truth. 
I'm from Tennessee, and they don't call us volunteers just because we like to show up to picnics. <laughs> if there was a battle to be fought, volunteers show up. I remind my Texan brothers that more Tennesseans died at the Alamo than you people, okay, just so you know. <laughs> and I say that gently. So we also must beware. It's easy to begin to use Scripture to justify taking things into my own hands and engaging in fleshly fighting where self-defense, fear of losing my rights, anger and fretting that leads to evil doing become the forces driving me. I can easily use Scripture as a shield to justify a spirit of militancy when God's Word is clear that I should not revile in return. Tom says this many, many times, Tom Askell, that we have a book, right? We have a book that gives us marching orders from our king. And as we stand for truth, we've got to cultivate faithfulness in our land. We've got to play by the Lord's rules, not the world's rules. And yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Yes, he gave fiery denunciations when the truth of God was challenged, but those never came in defense of himself or fighting for his rights. Some of us may be more than willing to shout the truth, but there's nothing of humble dependence in our attitude, just self-reliance. And none of that exemplifies those who are in Christ's kingdom. It's one thing for a pastor to say, we will obey God rather than man, therefore we must gather for worship out of obedience to our Lord's commands. It's another thing to fight for the, from the inward disposition of fretting over losing our rights or even losing our country. It's two different things. Hear this clearly. God does not need a purified America to accomplish his purposes in this world, but he intends to use a purified church. America may fall. I pray it doesn't. But Christ's kingdom will go on, and the church will be militant and triumphant, whether there's an America or not. And what we need is a spirit of gentleness, a trust in the Lord that surrenders complete control over to him. It's actually how, by the way, we first entered Christ's kingdom. And if you just peek back at the Beatitudes, you'll see it. In Matthew 5.1, we didn't enter Christ's kingdom proud and boisterous. We entered Christ's kingdom broken and humble. We acknowledged our spiritual bankrupt state before God. You realized that there was nothing in you that would commend you to God Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you mourned then over your sinful condition. You came to an end of yourself and mourned as you saw how you had sinned against a holy God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In turn, your only hope was to surrender control and give yourself fully to God. There's nothing you could do. You had to trust in the Lord. You had to rely upon the Lord. You, you gave up on yourself. You stopped fighting to be, to, to be in charge of your life. And in the spirit of gentleness, you surrendered and turned everything over to God. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And the way you entered his kingdom is how you continue to walk in his kingdom. What's causing you to fret this afternoon? What's causing you to wring your hands or tempting you to take things into your own hands either by fight or flight? Jesus has 
a promise for you in his kingdom. Blessed are those who give up control, for they will inherit the earth. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. If we'll simply trust the Lord, rest in him, delight in him, commit our way to him, do good and cultivate faithfulness in the land. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let earth be glad. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we are already triumphant in Christ. And that we respond to this world not out of fretting. For we have nothing to lose, we've already gained it all. And one day, Christ, you will come and set up your throne and set up your kingdom forever. And there will be no more opposition to you, no more wicked. And we pray during this time that we will, rather than fight, we will stand firm, speak truth, and call upon the wicked to bow before King Jesus. And that we might do so with a spirit of gentleness, knowing that that it's not our strength that will do this, but yours. In the precious name of Christ we pray, amen.